3. Draft Night. A Foundation for Greatness. This may be the most pitiful thing I've ever seen. I thought to myself as I took a sip of a cold Michelob Golden and hung my head in sheer empathetic agony. I'd heard the stories of Casey's piss-poor effort in the beer mile the year before, but my God, this was sad. And multiple times during the running, he stopped and put his hands on his knees to catch his breath, motionless, not even power-walking. More than once during beers three and four, he stopped drinking and just paused for what seemed like forever, not drinking, not moving. As the timer on my phone ticked past 10 minutes, he was not even through three laps yet. Then 12 minutes went by. Finally, he sauntered across the finish line 14 minutes and 55 seconds after he began to the collective Bronx cheer of the Lug members present. Hoy had followed him around the track with a GoPro, claiming he wanted to see the pain in his eyes. As a former runner of the beer mile, he would know that pain all too well. To this point, that was about the best thing I'd be able to say about my fantasy career in the league, that I had never lost the league and been punished for it. With Casey's punitive exercise complete, we filed into our cars and headed for the Missouri Athletic Club to do the draft. The six or so of us who showed up to watch Casey suffer climbed into cars, pulled out of the parking lot, and onto Essex Road, a road that would leave nine men to a draft, but me to a championship. The draft room was very bland but open and had all the amenities we would need to conduct business. I was isolated in the corner to the right in an effort to keep any remnants of my illness to myself. We had a waiter and we stocked up on buckets of beer, appetizers, and chicken wraps. The champions wore their green jackets and other championship apparel. The trophy was not present. Reigning champ Brad had left it in Colorado. Brett was between a wedding and a reception. Brad and Joe were in from out of town and all were present. No one stopped to reflect on the last time all ten of us were in a room together. Casey was particularly salty about missing the Dynasty rookie draft that occurred online recently. Our photos and write-ups were revealed, and the draft commenced. There was action right out of the gate. Hoy and Kevin agreed to a deal involving the first overall pick. Kevin agreed to trade away the 101, his first-rounder next season, and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Hoy would part ways with Aaron Jones and Tyreek Hill. This made sense. Kevin did not need a fourth running back, and he got good pieces for the pick in Jones and Hill. This deal assured my suspicion that Kevin was targeting Mahomes at 1.7. The Hill-Mahomes stack was a deadly combo. Hoy took Harris first, and Brad took Williams second. Chalk picks. I was up next and was the first real question mark of the draft. Pete had been giving me running backs with this pick in our mocks, but I wanted a difference maker tight end. My strategy had evolved to this point. I wanted players who could win weeks. I did not see this ability in my keepers save for Adams. Waller could put up huge numbers from tight end against three to five point performances from opponents, or so I thought. I grabbed Waller and knew the rest of my strategy would hinge on my second round pick. Josh Allen would be another weak winner, but it would be hard to pass up on wide receiver talent if it made it that far. Casey had the next pick and took DJ Moore. I can't remember how I reacted exactly. I may have groaned quietly to myself or dropped my face into both of my hands or whispered to myself quietly, what the <clears throat> is this guy doing? But it was a typical Casey move. The guy that reached on TJ Yeldon, Cordero Patterson, and Marlon Mack in the first round in previous years had struck again. He could not have ruined that pick more. DJ Moore was on Casey's morbidly bad roster that won him a spot in the beer mile the previous year. He had to have known he was not in a good spot, but reached anyway for a wide receiver that most likely would have slid to the mid-second round or further. But Casey will do Casey things, and he shotgunned a beer for that pick. Ryan then took Chris Carson. Made sense. He needed running back talent, and Carson had done good things previously. 
I now had to choose between David Montgomery and James Robinson when something occurred to me. Maybe it was the beer. Maybe the trade Kevin and Hoy made involving Tyreek. Maybe it was my understanding of Kevin's love for draft day trades. Or maybe the fact that Casey's inexplicable pick allowed two quality running backs to fall to me. But I decided to take a shot. As the draft board displayed my name and played the Rocky theme song, I pointedly asked Kevin if he wanted to buy my pick before I took Mahomes. It was 100% bluff. I did have a love for Mahomes and took him in the first round of a 2QB league. I had no real reason to think Kevin would make the deal, but Kevin surprised me. And what I could tell 15 seconds later was a moment of panic. Kevin spit out a three, and I accepted before 10 seconds had ticked off the draft clock. The league approved the deal, and I saw buyer's remorse in Kevin's eyes almost instantly. Not sure if this was an ethical move, but it was one the fantasy guys would seem to reward. Kevin took Mahomes, and I grabbed Montgomery, the guy I would have taken a pick earlier, over James Robinson. My logic, I liked Monty's workload with the absence of Tyreek Cohen compared to the uncertainty of a team that had spent up trying to replace Robinson in the NFL draft. The first round continued on. Joe then grabbed Allen Robinson at 1.8. I thought it was a very good pick, and a guy I would have taken over Josh Allen and Keenan Allen in round two. That turned out to be the burn of the draft. Pete got Kittle at 1.9. Seems there was no threat of the tight ends going early as I had worried. Hoy had back-to-back picks and crushed me with Keenan Allen at 1.10. I was worried for a brief moment about him taking Josh Allen at 2.1, but he went with Mike Evans instead. I was not a fan of Evans at this point, but he would go on to have a very nice season, better than any other wide receiver taken in the first two rounds. I took Josh Allen next, the last remaining of my three guys I had on my board. Had Hoy taken him, I would have been without a plan, as I would later find myself during round three. The room was shocked, as I had typically waited on quarterbacks in the past. Hoy would later call this pick on the Two Ordinary Gentlemen's podcast, the pick of the second round. I had my reservations about taking a QB here. I also really liked Dak Prescott and the Dallas receiving core. Dak would almost certainly be a lock to be there in the middle of the third round. It was why I insisted on trading Hoy the later third rounder for Eckler and eventually gave him a seven to boot. But with no other wide receiver talent I loved, and with guys going later in the draft I wanted to take a shot on, I saw no reason to take a wide receiver here when there were guys like Davis, Ayuk, Claypool, Thomas, Cooks, Antonio Brown, and Callaway going later. The rest of the second round was uneventful as it applied to my championship run. Brandon Ayuk did go at the bottom of the second round, a sobering reminder of what the world thought of Debo Samuel coming into this year. Joe took Daryl Henderson with the pick I traded him for Adams. Have to say that would work out well for him, as Kevin would later buy Henderson at the deadline for two first-round picks. Plenty of talent to be had in the third. With QB and tight end locked up, I needed wide receiver talent. Chase Claypool was the guy I had liked in the fourth early in the draft process, but now I had three third-round picks instead of one like I had only a few days ago. I was now outside of my draft plan. I knew I wanted a wide receiver and also two more running backs. I decided to grab Chase Claypool first. I loved his talent. He had a Hall of Fame quarterback and seemed like he could supplant the lackluster Deontay Johnson as a number one receiver in Pittsburgh. I was very wrong. Ben aged out, Johnson was a stud, and Claypool proved to be the kind of dingus who celebrates first downs while the clock is running in the two-minute drill. Not a good pick, and I shotgunned for it after the fourth. Passing on Amari Cooper, who I simply forgot was left in the draft pool, who would have been my wide receiver in the second had I not taken Josh Allen, also appeared to be a tumultuous blunder early in the season. Pete took him at 4.2, a huge draft day value. I redeemed myself, though, with my running backs. 
Damian Harris was my next pick, and he was a steal. I liked his talent, but mostly that he was on a team that had to run the ball with a rookie quarterback that would not be trusted. He fell because of the Belichick timeshare, a legit concern, and one that played out over the course of the year. In the end, he would be great for me, especially in the playoffs. Michael Carter was a good piece, too. I wanted a rookie running back, and it was between him and Trey Sermon. I did not love either, but I liked how Zach Wilson looked in preseason and thought maybe things would turn around for Gang Green. That turned out to not materialize, but Carter did, as he afforded me a nice starter throughout the year I could turn to, especially when Montgomery and Gibson got banged up. He certainly worked out better than Sermon, who seems to have slept with Kyle Shanahan's daughter, never called her again, and gotten benched for his actions. Hitting on these two guys allowed me to have five legit starting running backs and play the matchups all season long. By this time, I realized I had too many picks. I needed to move something. There was a dead zone in the fourth round. I did not like most of the guys expected to go in that round, especially given I was good on quarterback and tight end. At some point, I blurted out to the room, I'll sell this pick for waiver cash if anyone is interested. Kevin's hand went up, and we quickly worked out a deal where he sent me 350 waiver bucks. He talked me down from 400, probably about the right market value. I can't be sure who I would have taken with that pick if it were mine. Probably Corey Davis, but Kevin took Trey Sermon. It just was not going to be Kevin's year. After participating in my punitive beer drinking activities for the Claypool pick, the fifth round got off and running. I reached a little, but was very happy to get my must-get guy in Corey Davis. I'd watched the movie Draft Day to get fired up for the draft earlier that day. The slip of paper where Kevin Costner's character writes Vontae Mack's name and no matter what on it, that was Corey Davis to me, as Antonio Gibson was the year before. I was convinced he would be a fantasy starter. I took him one pick after Jamar Chase went, a guy I had only mild interest in at this point. Cooks, A.B., and Pittman were still on the board, and I was now ahead of everyone in the draft based on the two threes I had acquired and Brett Steele for Cooks. So with my last pick of the fifth round, I took a home run swing. I grabbed Michael Thomas. The thought being that I could draft other wide receivers late to hold his place, and if he came back even a faint glimmer of what he was before he was injured last year, he would be a starter the rest of the way. None of that would materialize. By this point, the draft begins to break down. After the sixth round rookie keepers, owners begin to do things like take kickers or IDP, and things get very hard to predict. Also, by this point, the influence of alcohol begins to creep up on many of us. I went to the bathroom at some point because I need to pee every 20 seconds when drinking and came back to find the seventh round was over and I missed a bunch of picks. Callaway went here to Joe. That was about the only real snipe I suffered that night other than Keenan Allen. He was a preseason darling I really wanted and I fell short. I made sure to congratulate Joe. Another event that occurred during this time was the end of J.K. Dobbins' season. I just so happened to be looking at my phone when the drop-down tab came announcing Dobbins was down on the field during a preseason game, and it looked very bad. I blurted this out to the league, and Hoy immediately drafted Gus Edwards. This was clearly a mistake on my part. I absolutely should have kept the information to myself, but it mattered little. I had traded away both of my seventh-round picks in the offseason as part of the Adams and Eckler's deal, so I had no chance of Edwards making it back to me. Also, Edwards would suffer a season-ending injury of his own not long into the year, and the Ravens would look to running backs like Devonta Freeman to carry the load. Still, this was a massive loss to Brett and the beginning of the unraveling of his season, all before the draft was over. As I drafted in the eighth round, I announced proudly that I can't believe this guy is still here as I attempted to take Brandon Cooks, who had already been selected by Brad. I settled for Antonio Brown, who was another of my sleepers, and would have a few good weeks himself, you know, before he got hurt, 
broke his brain, and left work early and half-naked for a day to promote his rap album. From here, things go fast. The draft time is cut to one minute, and owners panic to fill rosters. I believe I panic-picked Joey Boson next, only logic here being he was ranked high on ESPN's IDP rankings. He was cut by week three. I left the draft also with Michael Pittman, who I would eventually have to cut, and Jamal Williams, who was cut before the rosters were inputted. The one significant pick in this time was Matt Gay. I had more than a little logic behind selecting him, most of which I will keep to myself, but there were things I liked about him, and he ended up being a huge asset to me the entire year. As I looked at my roster, I was very happy. A few things became clear when the draft was initially analyzed. First, while Brett had suffered a massive loss in Dobbins, he and Kevin still seemed to stand above the rest with what I could only describe as super teams. Kevin's only weak point was a tight end position, something he could probably fill with a mid-season trade if he spent big enough, which Kevin always does. Brett's team was loaded with name power as well, and that was considering Mark Andrews had yet to emerge as the top tight end. Still, Saquon Barkley, DK Metcalf, Russell Wilson, and Dalvin Cook would all disappoint as things fell apart fast for the fighting fire crotches of Webster Groves. My team and Joe's team seemed to be a close but still distinct second tier. I was solid top to bottom, but other than Adams, did not really seem to possess that big-name player who could carry a team to a title. Joe had what turned out to be a very two-faced team. CMC, Sanders, and A-Rob would all disappoint horrendously. His value picks of Jamar Chase, Daryl Henderson, and Aaron Rodgers would play out well. Still, winning would elude him for nearly the entire season. Sitting alone, though, in that room, in a quiet corner was an owner grasping his lifeline, a single sheet of paper with player ranks on it that he used to draft. No one, not anyone, was looking at Gabe's team as anything special. Gabe was a buyer at the previous trade deadline and did not pick until round three in the 2021 draft as a result. I personally held Gabe's 2022 first-round pick and felt very good about the prospects of getting a high-end pick out of his season. We had no clue his rookie keeper, Johnny Taylor, would be the RB1. His first pick of the evening, Cooper Cup, would be the wide receiver one, and late-round steal, Debo Samuel, would be the wide receiver two. He would add undrafted quarterback Tom Brady, who would finish at quarterback four, and trade for Travis Kelsey to become the only legit super team by week eight. Pointing out greatness in Gabe's team at this point would be like an ignorant sports writer at the Post-Dispatch predicting a Super Bowl for the 99 Rams in the summer. There was nothing at all to suggest Gabe's team was anything other than mediocre at this point. This team would go on to have the best record in the league, score the most points in the league, and come within a heartbreaking .5 points of a championship. As the night drew to a close, we slipped downstairs for drinks on the patio. From there, we all looked out onto the setting sun on a perfect Midwest summer night. We were all hopeful. It's the beauty of draft night. Ten friends, seldom in the same state, never mind the same room, all enjoying each other's company as the sun went down on another offseason and would rise again tomorrow in the 2021 fantasy season. It would have been perfectly poetic for us all to finish our bourbon Manhattans, climb into an Uber, and return home to kiss our wives goodnight at a reasonable hour. But that's not how draft night goes. Most of us piled into an Uber not for home, but for the village bar and grill, and proceeded to pig out on junk food and pitchers of cheap draft beer until the night ended. Along with Steve joining us as an unprecedented guest on Lug Draft Night, one last event of note would unfold at the village. As I looked through one eye at a pile of waffle fries that were once accompanied by a double cheeseburger, I saw Hoy sitting across from me. I'm not sure how we got on the topic, but he wanted a side bet on whose team would finish higher this season. There was no doubt in my mind that I had a vastly better team. 
I asked him for steaks and he suggested $500, enough to get either of us divorced and possibly castrated should we lose. In an instant, all the <clears throat> talk he had thrown my way about not being a champ rushed over me as I pondered whether or not I was the kind of friend who would punish a drunken, arrogant fantasy rival by taking him up on a clearly one-sided $500 gamble. I decided to split the difference and we settled on a bottle of Colonel Taylor bourbon. He would later surrender the bet three quarters of the way through the season on a round of golf, which unbeknownst to me was probably more expensive than the bourbon bottle, though be it golf was certainly easier to acquire than the rare brown liquor. As I shook Hoy's hand on the bet and made him send the terms to the group in a text, I felt good. Even if I ended up in the Mendersky Bowl once more, I certainly can beat Hoy's lousy team. I would at least have that to celebrate at season's end. I said a few goodbyes and climbed into an Uber for a short ride home to Baldwin. I liked my team, but I do every year. This year was different, though. This year, my team would be the foundation for a title. Much work lay ahead, but I had come a long way from the island of misfit keepers I possessed just three months prior, and I was well on my way, my way down the road, to a championship.